And, and if you've been following along in your prayer and scripture reading guide this week, then you know that we're in for some interesting uh, Bible study, to uh, say the least. And, and if you haven't been a part of our 40 days of prayer and scripture reflection uh, yet so far this year, um, I'm still glad you're here today. In fact, really glad that you're here today. Uh, you need to know, as Braden shared, that we're in the middle of a six-part series uh, where we are really wrestling with what the Bible teaches about our sexuality and how to best uh, express that in God-honoring ways. Uh, our broader denomination is wrestling with this also, and it will likely end in some sort of a breakup within uh, the United Methodist Church, possibly within the year. Um, so this series is part of our uh, church's leadership's decision uh, to, to move forward. This is a part of our pathway forward uh, to pray together, to study together, uh, to, to also be kind to one another despite uh, our differences and disagreements uh, around how we interpret and apply the Bible's teachings. Um, so far in this series, which, uh, by the way, you can get caught up with online, uh, I've noticed a definite trending upward in the amount of views on our uh, sermons in this series, so uh, that's always a way that you can get caught up. Uh, but we've learned so far what a biblical worldview looks like, uh, including our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves, and, and our understanding of how God works in the world. Uh, we looked at the grand narrative of the Bible's story of, from creation uh, to the fall, to redemption, to uh, what we're all looking forward to, the, the consummation. Um, and, and we believe as Christians that we are a part of that greater story and that that story uh, molds us and shapes us and how we see God, ourselves, and the world and, and also how we, uh, goodness, how we uh, go about trying to wrestle with some of these difficult questions and subject matters. Uh, but we also looked at our present uh, Western worldview, particularly as it relates to sex, and, and how that clashes with a biblical worldview, where uh, in a biblical worldview, we believe that what we do with our bodies uh, really matters. Um, and this worldview clash creates a lot of conflict and struggle around many topics. Uh, for uh, our church today, especially, uh, ways to think about uh, same-sex marriage and uh, the overall kind of a movement of our culture toward affirming uh, all in affirming inclusion of the LGBT community. And last week, uh, I taught about what the scriptures do affirm. Uh, practices of holy sexuality, uh, faithfulness in marriage, and chastity in singleness. And, and we looked at some relevant places within the scriptures, particularly where Jesus, but also where others um, speak to this kind of holy sexuality. And now this week and next week is where we're really going to go deeper and do a little more in-depth study on the particular scriptures that address same-sex sexual behavior. Uh, this week, we're in the Old Testament, and then next week, we'll be in uh, looking at a couple from the New Testament. And our goals, or at least m my goals through this, are first for us to become familiar with those um, more relevant scripture passages, um, and then secondly, to gather up enough scriptural evidence to answer this question. Is all same-sex sexual behavior considered sexual immorality from a scriptural standpoint. Uh, the, the word for sexual immorality, the, the Greek word uh, used in the New Testament for that is the word pornea, 
uh, which is kind of an important word, uh, and its meaning is an important uh, for us to uh, figure out throughout this series. Uh, and and there, there's really great debate around the answer to that question. Uh, but you should know uh, that where I stand, and I, I've shared this before, that, that I believe that the biblical evidence suggests that yes, all same-sex sexual behavior is outside of God's design and desire. Uh, but that said, please know I love and care deeply for many people who disagree with me on that. Um, and, and, and I genuinely hurt for those who have been mistreated or made to feel ostracized by the church because of how they identify sexually or what they believe about that. So not only do I intend to represent fairly the significant questions on both sides of the answer to that question, uh, so that you can make up your own mind, uh, but more importantly, I want you to know that if you are questioning your own sexuality, or, or you identify as part of the LGBTQ community, that I love you, this church loves you, you are welcome here, you are not going to be condemned as you sort out what you believe or how you choose to live your life. Um, and I'll uh, get a little more specific in what that looks like practically for our church in, in our final week of this series on uh, February 9th. Now, I've found that much of the conflict and debate around human sexuality is rooted in how we approach the, the Bible itself. Uh, and I can't get into this too much, but our Wesleyan heritage um, agrees with a, the long line of historic Christian faith that the Bible is our supreme authority for faith and life, um, that it's the inspired word of God, and, and when rightly interpreted, that we can't just simply toss things out or pick and choose what we agree with and what we don't agree with and what we'll follow and what we won't follow. Uh, our work as interpreters of the Bible, and it's, a, it's your work too. It's not just my work. It is your work to, to work at interpreting the Bible is to let the Bible speak to us on its own terms. To do our best to understand what the, the Bible was speaking to its original hearers and, and then rightly apply that to our lives, taking into consideration the entire witness of the Bible overall. So, so when we're wrestling with a particular passage of Scripture, uh, we're going to follow an interpretive process. And this, if you can't remember this, it's outlined for you um, in your message notes today. Uh, first, we're going to look to the immediate biblical context of that passage. And then we may or may not look at the cultural context so that we can understand how the original hearers may have been hearing uh, that message because that's going to be different than the way we may be hearing it or reading it given our cultural context. And then uh, we will look to the ways that the rest of the scriptures interpret that particular passage because scripture interprets scripture uh, many times over. Um, and then we will always try to view that meaning and that message in light of that grand biblical narrative, the, the biblical worldview that we laid the foundation for already. And, and if I just lost you, uh, we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to do that process to some degree this week and next week. So you'll learn as we go. 
Uh, but we can't. All this to say, we can't just simply toss out uh, passages as being irrelevant for us today without a thorough interpretive process. Um, every passage, this, this is part of what I understand to be uh, the Bible being God's inspired word. It's that every, every passage rightfully understood tells us something about God, about ourselves, uh, about the way God works within the world, uh, or something else of significance. We make ourselves our own God when we just start saying, well, that doesn't apply, that doesn't apply, that doesn't apply, and just toss things out because we don't agree with it or it offends our, um, our conscience or our uh, s social understandings. Um, and, and so we need to wrestle with all of it, even the hard stuff. And, and that's what we're going to be doing today regarding same-sex sexual activity. Uh, now, now, please uh, know that the Bible isn't a book about same-sex sexual practice. That's not the intent of the scriptures. Uh, but the Bible does address it. Depending on how you count or the relevance of the passage, uh, half a dozen to a dozen times. Uh, and we're going to look at six uh, specific passages that I think are particularly relevant for us. They're kind of the big ones. Um, but our study on those passages will lead us to studying some other passages that also speak to those. Uh, and, and along the way, I'm going to uh, do my best to share some of the various perspectives about each passage. Uh, so are you ready? I mean, we're, we're about to jump in, and we're going to go in deep, okay? Uh, so uh, let, let's start with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, this is found in Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read it, but I'm going to warn you first. Brace yourselves. This is not a pretty story. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot, who happened to be Abraham's nephew, uh, was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door, but the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door to, of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. Now, suffice it to say, that is a horrific story on many levels. It's actually a story that is repeated in the book of Judges, uh, toward the end of the book of Judges, almost the same story. Um, and, and throughout the ages, Sodom and Gomorrah have become synonymous 
with extreme sinfulness and divine judgment. Um, even from the lips of Jesus himself on multiple occasions. Um, linguistically and culturally, uh, the word sodomy comes from the commonly understood sin that was at least, at the very least, attempted at Sodom. Uh, but, but what sin was, was really committed? And what sin was attempted in this story? You know, those who affirm uh, same-sex marriage insist that this story is more about violence and gang rape uh, rather than speaking about a, a committed um, same-sex sexual relationship. Um, and, and they point out that the real sin here is a lack of hospitality to God's messengers. Uh, and these are both uh, two very good observations. Um, let's look at two other places in Scripture. As we let Scripture interpret Scripture, uh, let's look at two other places in Scripture that speak to Sodom and Gomorrah in order to see how the rest of the Bible interprets uh, the sin or sins in question. Uh, first, I'm jumping all the way to near the end of the New Testament um, in the book of Jude. It's a one-chapter book, um, so it's Jude verse seven that I'm reading from. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality, that's that word pornea, and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, it, it's fairly clear, even without understanding the broader context of this letter to the church, uh, from Jude, um, it, it's very clear that, that when we let Scripture interpret Scripture, that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah at least involves some level of sexual immorality. Um, it, it's not merely inhospitality, although that might, might be a part of what's going on in this passage. But, but the question still remains, is this sexual immorality more about violence and, and even possibly gang rape, or does it include all? same-sex sexual activity. Now, the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament also brings up these two infamous cities um, as part of a pronouncement of judgment on God's people. Um, uh, let me share that passage here. It's chapter 16, starting at verse 47. You not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore... I did away with them, as you have seen. This, this, is, this is really good. Uh, it, it, it's, clear, it's clear here from verse 49, I think, that, that the sin of Sodom includes a lack of hospitality. Um, but there's more going on here that we need to unpack. Uh, specifically, verses 47 and 50 uh, use this phrase, uh, detestable things or detestable practices. Um, this is, it's the same Hebrew word. It's a, a singular, it's a one Hebrew word. It's a pronounced to'iva. 
Um, and in many translations, this word toiva is uh, translated as abomination. Um, now, you can't see this from the translation that I just read from, uh, but in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 47, detestable practices is plural. It's abominations. Uh, Sodom committed many abominations, including pride, arrogance, uh, uh, social injustice, a, a, a not caring for the needy and the poor. Uh, but verse 50 in our translation says detestable things. But in the original Hebrew and, and many other uh, what I think are more accurate uh, English translations of this passage, uh, that word toiva is singular. Sodom committed many abominations, verse 47, but they perpetrated a singular abomination also, verse 50. Now, Ezekiel doesn't spell this out directly, uh, but I think at the very least this is possibly an allusion to the next section of Scripture that we'll look at, the book of Leviticus. Uh, so let's move there. While you are moving there, I, I want to share that there are, are actually two verses in Leviticus that speak directly to same-sex sexual activity. Uh, chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 13. Um, and, and we'll look at those in a bit. But first, I, I want to share a little bit of the context of, of those verses. Uh, Leviticus, if you've ever tried to read it, is, is a very interesting book. It's a little difficult to read in places. Uh, but, but just a, 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 a different kind of a book. It, and Leviticus' overarching message is about holiness. Um, in, in fact, the word holy or holiness occurs at least 87 times in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus ultimately teaches, the big picture message of Leviticus teaches that God is holy and his people must be holy in their worship. They must be holy in their practices in order to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which is a central theme in the Old Testament uh, for God's people. It's actually also, according to the New Testament, a central theme for the church today. Um, the, the second half of Leviticus, uh, so chapter 17 and on, um, is oftentimes referred to as the holiness code uh, because it spells out how the Israelites, God's uh, people were to live as God's holy people. Um, in, in chapter 19, uh, verse 2, actually, we see the, the underlying motive of this holiness code, uh, where God says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And Jesus actually repeats this verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's translated, be perfect, therefore, as I am perfect. Uh, chapter 5 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, now, chapter 18 in Leviticus is all about uh, holiness within the family uh, and sexual holiness. And in this chapter, uh, we, we find that incest is bad, that adultery is bad, that killing your children is bad, um, and, and that having sex with animals is bad. Uh, and then in verse 22, we read this. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. 
And then chapter 20 emphasizes the seriousness of, of all of these other calls to holiness by prescribing punishment for violations. Um, and there, there are many for different sins, and, but the one we're looking at here is verse 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, let me, let me first just say that in the Old Testament, God's people were um, a nation state. Um, and not, not only were they given God's uh, code of conduct, uh, but they also had their own civil sanctions, uh, including execution. Um, in, in the birth of the church in the New Testament, the gospel, uh, the, the gospel message was not confined to any one people group. It wasn't confined to any one race, any one people group, any one nation, any one government. Uh, followers of Jesus fall under the jurisdiction of, of all kinds of governments uh, throughout our world, all, all kinds of, of states and civil institutions and laws of the land. And so punishments like we find in Leviticus 20, when God's people were isolated to one nation state, they're not in effect today for the people of God, the church. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, theologically, one can e easily argue that Jesus already took those punishments on our behalf. Uh, and, and nobody's suggesting that sanctions like those should be in effect today. Uh, but they sometimes speak to the severity of the moral code that is being broken. Uh, but there are two important questions that arise from these uh, particular passages in Leviticus. First, what, what is the actual sin that is being condemned? Uh, and secondly, and maybe even more importantly, is this still relevant for the church today? Let me address those. Uh, first, the question about what kind of same-sex sexual behavior is being condemned here. Uh, many who affirm same-sex sexual practice have suggested that, that these verses are really only understanding and referring to unhealthy types of same-sex sexual activity, such as, um, and this is brought up repeatedly in, in circles of conversation around these passages, uh, such as um, uh, adult men forcing themselves on young boys, uh, a practice called pederasty. Uh, but this, this doesn't seem to be the case given the fact that the punishment prescribed in chapter 20 condemns both partners, suggesting that there's some mutuality here, there's some consensual act happening. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 22, when a man rapes a woman, uh, the punishment for the man is death, uh, but the woman is not punished. The, 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 the one being raped isn't condemned also, uh, which suggests that looking at this Leviticus 20 passage, that there's an understanding of some consensuality, uh, that it isn't merely rape that is being talked about. Uh, but since there are no qualifications made in this passage or any of the other portions of this section of the Holiness Code, it stands to suggest that all same-sex sexual activity between men uh, was, was considered unacceptable. The more important question, I think, for us today is, uh, the, the one of present-day relevance. Uh, 
Um, and, and this line of thought usually goes like this. And, and I've heard this from everyday people reading and studying the Bible to a prominent uh, United Methodist pastors who will say something along these lines. Hey, look, Leviticus has a lot of crazy commands that we obviously don't follow anymore, which is true. Uh, like not eating shellfish. Uh, that's uh, Leviticus 11.9. Uh, my family actually ate some shellfish uh, last night. Um, or, or, or the requirement to uh, wear clothes made only from one type of fabric. That's Leviticus 19.19. 19. Uh, those, the argument goes, are, are not universal. So neither should prohibitions against same-sex sexual activity be seen as universal. This is another way of saying Hey, look, you, you're picking and choosing what to follow and what not to. You're being inconsistent, which is a great point and one that re requires a little more study. Uh, I just want you to know my heart as your pastor that I long to be consistent in applying the teachings of the scriptures. May God have mercy on me where I fall short of that. Um, but I want to speak to these important questions because they're good ones. Um, why do we still hold firm to some commands, uh, say in Leviticus or, or other parts of God's law in the Old Testament, but we don't, uh, we don't follow others? Well, a nutshell answer is that we follow those things that are reaffirmed in the New Testament and we don't follow those things that have otherwise been ruled out by the New Testament. Uh, for instance, uh, dietary laws. Uh, Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 7 uh, that all foods are clean for us to eat. He said it's not what goes in you that defiles you, but rather what comes out of you. I, I shared this passage a couple weeks ago in the first week of this sermon series, um, and, and it's an important passage. Um, in fact, uh, part of what Jesus says defiles us is sexual immorality. Um, another example, Old Testament holy days. I get this one all the time. Why, why we're commanded in the Old Testament to follow these uh, ceremonial uh, celebrations and things. Why, why don't we follow them anymore? Well, Romans chapter 14 in the New Testament renders those as optional for Christ followers. Uh, yet another example, ceremonial cleanliness laws, like not wearing different kinds of fabric, and uh, kind of add on to that the entire sacrificial system, which is outlined in depth in the book of Leviticus. Uh, well, according to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapters 7 through 10, these were all fulfilled and completed in Jesus' death. There's so much more that could be said on any number of these questions. Uh, but the short answer is, we don't follow the, some commands anymore because we follow Jesus. Uh, now, a little bit more on the question of relevance. Um, Leviticus in general, and the second half of Leviticus, the holiness code in particular, they are referred back to often in the New Testament. So, the early church and Jesus himself didn't seem to think that this portion of scripture was irrelevant for the church. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Jesus all refer back to Leviticus and they do so 
often. In fact, Jesus quoted Leviticus more than any other Old Testament book in the Bible, uh, including Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, one that you all should be very familiar with, or at least I hope you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I believe it's safe to say that whatever Levitical commands the New Testament doesn't reinterpret individually or categorically, that it, that remains applicable as part of a godly and holy life. Um, in fact, there are several places in the New Testament where there are brand new followers of Jesus, brand new believers who, who did not have a Jewish background, that, that they were Gentiles. And the, the early church uh, gave them these directions. They said, look, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to follow that law. You, you don't need to follow the dietary laws. Jesus already rendered that uh, as, as you don't need to follow that. But you need to refrain from sexual immorality. See Acts chapter 15 and m m multiple references in 1 Corinthians. Um, so according to the entirety of Scripture, the holiness code, um, rightly interpreted, seems to continue to be relevant for the church today. Um, so start studying Leviticus, I guess. Uh, but, uh, one more thing about these uh, two verses in Leviticus, uh, particularly as they relate to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember how I shared that Ezekiel used the Hebrew word toiva, uh, uh, detestable practices, uh, detestable things. Uh, he used it in, in chapter 16, verse 47 in the plural, and then in chapter 16, verse 50 in the singular. Well, this word, uh, toiva, is used throughout Leviticus. Um, when, when you read your, the English translations, you'll see detestable things, detestable practices or abominations multiple times uh, throughout Leviticus. Uh, well, well, there is actually only one sin. Uh, uh, it's used multiple times in Leviticus, all the time in the plural, except for twice, referring to one particular sin. And, and you guessed it. It's the two verses that we looked at. Chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 13. It's the only time it's used singular to describe one particular abomination to the Lord. Uh, and it's clear from uh, that he's in Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, when he's interpreting the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, saw that they committed many abominations, many detestable practices, including social injustice and arrogance and pride. Uh, but it also seems that Ezekiel makes at least an indirect connection to Leviticus 18 and 20 with one particular sin that is a singular abomination unto the Lord. Male, same-sex sexual activity. In summary, the Old Testament appears to unequivocally condemn male-male sexual, sexual activity between both participants. Uh, and. And I believe that the New Testament follows that trend. Um, even, goodness, even pointing back to these passages in multiple ways to reaffirm that teaching for the church today. Uh, but we'll look at that more uh, next week and ask some of the difficult questions surrounding those. Uh, but please hear me. I, I just, just want to be transparent for a minute. 
it brings me no joy whatsoever to study these texts and teach about them knowing that the implications cause some of you great pain and heartache. I made a promise uh, to this church uh, about a year ago now that I would never use the Bible as a weapon to condemn people. And I want you to know that from the bottom of my heart that just because I believe the biblical evidence says that all same-sex sex, same sexual activity is contrary to God's good design and desire for people, people that God loves dearly, just because I believe that doesn't mean that I somehow think less of you uh, or someone that you love who considers themselves a part of the LGBTQ community. Um, and I certainly don't condemn you. I, I would be standing on extremely shaky ground if I ever condemned you or anyone else. Uh, and you know what? I, I don't believe that God condemns you either. I mean, we've been studying parts of the Old Testament here, and, and, and I think it's important to kind of know the overarching message of the Old Testament, what, what is really going on in the big grand story. It's a story of a holy God who loves his creation despite their rebelliousness and their sin. And the law was, was God's good gift given to his people, meant to, to point to the holiness of their creator and to also help them recognize the depth of their own brokenness and their distance from God's holiness. And God knew that they couldn't live up to and attain um, his holiness, that that's why God created provision for forgiveness and grace. And despite the countless times where God called his unfaithful and unholy people back to him over and over and over again, and the countless times that God's people rejected God's advances and ways, uh, turned their backs on him, God never gave up. You know, God never gives up on you. He loves you. He loves me. Despite our broken state. And he proves his love ultimately by sending Jesus. And not to forgive us and then let us just continue to live a life far from him. No, he sent Jesus to restore his image in our lives. To restore what's been broken and distorted. To transform our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit so that we can live holy and righteous lives and be his image bearers in a world that is just, just drowning in despair and darkness. And if you feel heartache or confusion or pain or anything else like that that this study has brought up, Goodness, you're not alone. Uh, speaking about the Old Testament, the New Testament says this, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing and all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And I've shared this before, I'll share it again. Even though the Bible should never be used as a weapon to condemn people or oppress people or manipulate people, 
if we are open to its work in our lives, I promise it's going to hurt. But it's the kind of pain that leads to healing and transformation. It's like the pain from the scalpel of a divine surgeon who knows just what cut is needed to make us healthy and to thrive. And if you are hurting as you try to weigh out the implications of God's word for your life and for others, we as a church, we can hold each other up in prayer on that journey. So specifically, I, I want to make myself available to you. Contact me. Let, let, let's, let's set up a time to talk. I, I would love to hear your story and wrestle with the scriptures together with you. Um, also, I want to invite everyone here to our next worship and prayer night on Wednesday, February 12th from 6.30 to 8, uh, right here in this room. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different than our previous worship and prayer nights uh, because it will... Uh, kind of be in the form of a holy sexuality talkback session. Uh, we, we'll still uh, worship together musically. Uh, I'll provide a short time of guided prayer. And then there will be an opportunity for you to share your heart with those who are gathered. And we're also going to have a time of Q&A where you can submit the questions on your heart as a result of this sermon series. And I will do my best to respond to those questions. Um, th these are difficult times. And they require love and grace and patience with one another. And they demand a whole lot of prayer and turning to God's word. Uh, we've already turned to God's word this morning. So let, let's turn to God in prayer. Would you, would you stand with me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we seek you. We long to know your will. We want to rightly discern your will by letting your word speak to us on its own terms. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to subtract from it. We want more of you, and we long to follow your ways, Lord. Would you help us do just that? Would you help us to live holy lives, fully recognizing that you are a holy God, Lord, would you help us by the power of your spirit to lift each other up and to encourage one another toward holy living as we seek to reflect your image through our lives. And Father, we know that part of that is to love and to respect one another despite our differences and disagreements. Lord, give us your grace upon grace to be people who don't point at and condemn each other but lift each other up as we point to you. And long to live the life of holiness that you call us to. And please, Father, forgive us for all the times that we have and we'll continue to fall short of that. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, the embodiment of your holiness. Amen.